my mom was giving this boy I had a crush on to ride home from school. And I remember thinking, I'm going to impress him. And I'm sitting in the front seat. He's sitting in the back seat. I pop in Billy Joel's greatest hits and I skip to We Didn't Start the Fire. And I turn around and I was like, this is a really good song and it's about history. So you should know it. <laughs> I'm Nick Harcourt, and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Carrie Corrigan is joining us on The Sound of Success today. Carrie is an associate director of creative development for Condé Nast, where she works for the seminal music website Pitchfork, as well as for Vanity Fair magazine, and has produced work with Elton John, Barack Obama, and her personal musical heroes, including Liz Fair and Amy Mann. She's also in the midst of writing a much-anticipated book on the life of director and screenwriter Elaine May that's due out in 2023 for St. Martin's Press. You can also find her writing on the film website Bright Wall Dark Room, as well as on NPR Music, Garage Magazine, Flood, and more. Welcome, Carrie. It's great to meet you. Hi, it's great to meet you too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to hearing about your music choices in a minute, but first up, Tell us a little bit about the book that you're writing about, Elaine May, who was famously half of the comedy duo Nichols and May. She wrote The Birdcage, Primary Colors, and Tootsie, and directed the Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman movie Ishtar and The Heartbreak Kid. The title of the book is Miss May Does Not Exist, The Life and Work of Elaine May, Hollywood's Hidden Genius. Why a book about Elaine May, and why now? A lot of my writing in the past few years especially, has been really focused on women in pop culture who I really admire and I feel some sort of pull towards who I think have been misunderstood or maligned by the narrative at the time. I think the work that I do is a little bit like revisionist history where it's not just saying, look how great these women are, look what they've done, but examining them as whole people and kind of reveling in, in the case of Elaine May, in their flaws uh, and in all of their idiosyncrasies that make them fascinating and I think flattened by, by history. I, I've loved Elaine May for a really long time. I think we've seen a bit of a renaissance around her. Mm. And I just kind of got to the point where I was like, as much as I love Mike Nichols, why, is there, why are there three books on Mike Nichols, but there's nothing on Elaine May? Granted, yeah. I know she doesn't make it easy. That's one explanation, but uh, just thought I'd shoot my shot and here I am. <laughs> the older I get, the more convinced I am that all uh, all history is revisionist. It just depends on who's writing it, obviously, as as we know. But she's notably press avoidant, as, as we mentioned. Are you trying to talk to her about the book? Have you had an opportunity to talk to her about the book? Does it make it harder to write a book when you don't have access? I'm trying to. I'm not holding my breath. I've been speaking with people close to her and um it's it, it makes it frustrating and difficult to speak or to write a book. It makes it it makes it frustrating and it is difficult to write a book without your subject's involvement. Elaine could be the Zodiac killer and we would never find <laughs> out. She runs a tight ship. It's been an interesting experience so far. Have you been able to figure out why she is so, uh, so press shy? I think there are a few different things. She's very, very private. 
And I think she spent so long, especially when she was a director, so many years of bad press and being painted as a hysterical woman or difficult or like hell on wheels that I can see why she would say, okay, I'm just going to not engage at all. Why bother telling my side of the story if they're not going to believe me? Mm. Uh, that, that's my take, at least. But, but clearly an opportunity to, to set the record straight, obviously, if she's felt uh, so misunderstood th through the process. And it sounds from what you're saying as, as well that she made a deliberate choice at some point to just sort of step away and not engage. Right. And that's the thing that I think now where it is like, why not set the record straight if you have been so misunderstood? If all of these things that I'm reading are true, if you really value the truth above all, you have the opportunity, the ball is in your court, especially in the last 10 years. Everyone is rooting for you. Mm. Everyone is saying, yeah, we fucked up. We were wrong. You were mistreated. Come out and like own your life. Come but out I and play. Can, I, Give but us I can the real see, scoop. Like, yeah. Yeah, I can. I mean, I can see she's 90 years old. I can see being just tired and thinking, I don't want to bother. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of like that every morning, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I'm not 90, but <laughs> um, get up and like, ah, oh, please. But let's talk a little bit about your role at, at Pitchfork specifically. Um, what do you think about Pitchfork re-reviewing some albums that they gave low or high scores to in the past? I mean, this sort of ties into what we were just talking about, really. How is that with, uh, you know, Pitchfork deciding to revise their past scores for uh, things that they reviewed? Any thoughts? Oh, putting, putting me in the hot seat here. That's um, our job, man. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is a smart concept. I think it's smart to say, here are the ways in which we were wrong. Uh, about something, we were either swayed by hype or the cultural climate at the time was made it much easier for us to engage in narratives that were sexist or racist. Just ways in which you can address what you did in the past that you don't agree with anymore. It's smart to say, like, my opinions change and grow over time. And it's not like they're changing the actual scores on the reviews. They're not erasing anything that has happened they're simply acknowledging it so yeah I, I don't have any problem with that let me just quickly ask before we jump into talking about uh, your musical picks just to sort of follow up on, on on this idea of taking a look back at previous reviews pitchfork was a, an independent company until about six years ago i, I do believe when conde nast bought it i can only imagine what the difference must have been has been editorially obviously since then i think you can tell if you if you look at pitchfork from six years ago to now that it became a, a little bit more broad mainstream I, I guess in what they look at and, and review these days are they specifically going back pre-conde nast or is it a, across the board it was across the board i think there were some post-conde acquisition reviews that, that were looked at and revised in a way, but I think the majority of them ended up being before 2015. Because gotcha. I think, yeah, 2015 on, just the, the discussion around music has been so much different from like 2015 to now versus like, I don't know, like the early aughts. Understood. And uh, back in the day, I guess, when these music blogs were first rising, you know, at the beginning of the aughts, as you call, call them, uh, the, the people who p were perhaps writing at that time were coming from a different place 
than people are who are reviewing records today. And that's a whole cultural shift, I'm sure. But let's talk a little bit about your musical uh, memory and the music that, that has turned you on through the years. First of all, if you don't mind me asking, where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Pennsylvania near Harrisburg, um, Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, tiny, tiny suburb. What kind of a kid were you? What was your first exposure to music? What's your first musical memory? My mom always says I, I was born 40 years old. I spent a lot of time around adults when I was really young. So I have a very weird sort of palette of things that I enjoyed in pop culture from my childhood. I think my earliest musical memory is I, I had this babysitter who I would spend a lot of time with and she was in my memory she was like very much an old woman and now I'm like she was like 45 <laughs> what are you talking about but she loved classic rock like 70s rock early 80s and I remember I loved ABBA the ABBA gold album was my jam and Fleetwood Mac's Tango in the Night right I Loved those two albums so much. And I'm like five this whole time. And this is because the babysitter was playing this stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you say you were born at 40, I imagine you sort of, you know, arriving, drinking and, you know, smoking cigarettes or something. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) what about music that you discovered yourself at a young age yourself? Was the radio on? For a very long time, I listened to a lot of stuff that like, if I was listening to something on the radio, it was stuff that everyone my age was listening to. I definitely do have memories about Backstreet Boys and Britney Mm. Spears. The Shania Twain Come On Over album, classic in my opinion. Say no more. Or that tape out. But then I just, I was discovering like older music by going through my parents' cassettes. And I remember like, my mom had a Billy Joel Greatest Hits. I think it was a cassette. And I played it over and over again. And I remember being in like fourth grade and thinking I like just discovered this singer. Amazing. And my mom was taking me home. My mom was giving this guy I had a crush, this boy I had a crush on. She's giving us a ride home from school. And I remember thinking, I'm going to impress him. And I'm sitting in the front seat. He's sitting in the back seat. I pop in Billy Joel's Greatest Hits. And I skipped to, we didn't start the fire. And I turned around and I was like, this is a really good song and it's about history. So you should know it. (laughs) (laughs) Just like the look on his face was like, okay. How how old are you? I was like nine or 10. Nine or 10. You need to listen up, kid. This is about history. What about buying music? What was the first music you bought with your own money? I keep thinking about this and the timeline doesn't match up. I remember, I distinctly remember going to this store in the mall called uh, The Wall and buying a Backstreet Boys single. Um, But it was from their first album and I was only like six or seven when that came out. So I'm like, I wouldn't have had my own money. That couldn't have happened. That couldn't have happened, but I distinctly remember it. I I also remember buying... um, I remember buying two different Bewitched CDs. The cringiest, (laughs) cringiest memory, but yeah, stuff like that. Stuff that was like an S Club 7, like big, like the era of one hit wonders. Carrie, Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> one hit wonder, like manufactured, like once they all, you got those managers who were like, I'm going to create the next sure. hot boy band or hot girl band. Yeah. Set, like Spice Girls, all that shit. I loved it. I feel like we should explain to some people a couple of the reference points you just made. First of all, a single, which was a cassette that just had one or maybe two tracks on it. So it was like a, an old school single. And The Wall, which I remember from when I lived in upstate New York years ago, that was the Northeast record chain that you would find in, in malls, right? It was sort of like the mall record, uh, record store. Yeah, I think it was like the mall version of Tower Record. Exactly. What about concerts? What was the first concert you went to without your parents, for that matter? I was a senior in high school. My parents were really, really overprotective. I would have friends who would go to Philly. It was like an hour drive away. And the parents would drop them off at a concert, like hang around in the city and then pick them up and drive them home. Mm. For all these indie bands that I loved, like in the late aughts, like, like Death Cab for Cutie and... Ryle Kylie and I was just like oh my god please let me go and I wasn't I was never allowed if a parent wasn't taking them um but then my senior year of high school my parents finally let me take a train to Philadelphia and see Ben Folds but it, mm. the caveat was with that was that I wasn't with an adult but I was with my older cousin who was like 21 but yeah, that was the first like big concert I remember going to that I was like, oh, I'm fully like on my own for this. This is so cool. I'm so grown up. Do you remember how you felt? I mean, do you remember get, going in on the train and uh, meeting your, your cousin and going into the venue? Do you remember how it felt to actually be inside a venue and seeing a, a, a musician or music that you had decided yourself you wanted to go see? I had that experience before, but it was always kind of like, I can't believe I'm here with my mom or I can't mm -hmm. believe like my mom's not going to enjoy this. This is my music and that's right. going to dampen my enjoyment of the evening. So I remember being really hyped for this and really thinking like, this is me making a, an adult decision and enjoying something as an independent person. What do you listen to when you want to dance? If you feel like dancing, what are you going to put on? Anything that would have played at like Danceteria in the like late 80s, any kind of like New York, late 80s, new wave stuff is kind of my go-to dance music. Give me like late stage talking heads. Give me B-52s, Madonna, anything kind of like that. I, I can dig that. What about if you're feeling a little melancholy or a little sad? What are you going to listen to? It depends like what what kind of sad we're talking about. I take, I am a big sad music fan. I take it very seriously. Well, I have please, like detailed let's, let's playlists. I have playlists that are like, here's for one. There's like the catch all sad playlist. Then there's like, if you're feeling heartbroken, if you're having anxiety or seasonal depression, like all different versions. I love playing through every version of Landslide that's on Spotify in a row, like <laughs> eight, like eight different versions of Landslide and just like weeping. I love Amy Mann, Amy Mann, classic sad music. It's not from Lost in Space is like one of the saddest songs I've ever heard in my life. Her last album is full of really, really, really sad songs, but it's they're really dark. good. Yeah. She's gotten darker as she's gotten older for sure. I love it though. Like that's the kind of stuff that I, I love the most, I think. You know, our next question ties in a, a little bit to what you do from the point of view of video. Actually, just, just tell me very quickly, if you don't mind, what does it mean to be an associate director of 
creative development? What, what does that actually mean? I develop new series, new video series for Pitchfork, and I produce um, their longstanding series like Over Under and um, new series. And then also like if there's a feature coming out, like uh, like their 25th anniversary, kind of figuring out what's the video component of this. So that ties into our next question about video. Do you have a favorite music video? And if so, why? Oh, a favorite. I really love recently the music videos that Paul Thomas Anderson has directed for Heim. I wouldn't say they're my favorite, but like that's what comes to my mind first. The one he did, I think it was called Valentine. That was three of their tracks from Something to Tell You. It's just, it's so simple. It's just them in a studio, but it's all, it all seems like one long continuous take of them just tracking the album. I like when a video goes back to just capturing the magic of making music and it doesn't get caught up in there are some really well like overproduced videos but i love a video that's just like here is the magic of making something right so a video a video that actually shows the the process of whoever it might be in this case obviously you talked about heim actually making music and, and being in a studio as opposed to a storytelling video then i guess right i've noticed that there's a lot of videos now that uh I think they just seem lazy, you know, where it's kind of like, we've got a song, we need to do a video. We've got a friend who does animation. Maybe he can come up with something or she can come up with something like that. Yeah. I mean, videos are expensive to produce, but I definitely, I'm not a fan of the like lyric video that's coming out as the sort of go between. Yeah. I I'd rather just like, don't do anything. I'm, I'm with you. So let's talk a little bit about new music. How do you discover new music? I'm guessing you find it in your job, but do you have a, a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? I definitely get a lot of it in my job. There are so many things wrong with Spotify, but I have absolutely discovered new music through the platform. I think it's made it so much easier for me to go on rabbit holes, um, to read about somebody um, especially somebody who's like a forgotten artist who put out like one album in the 60s or something. And instead of like trying to track down that record or track down a cassette of it or something, I can fit into the internet and find it. It's not new music, but I, I think the like last one that really stands out to me is I found this album from, I think her name is Chandra no. Oppenheim. Oh. But she just goes by Chandra. She was like, a 12-year-old girl, it's like 1980 in New York, and she recorded this like post-punk album. She's like 12, and it's it rips. It's really good. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, we're going to have to find like, that. I think her parents were musicians and, and had a bunch of friends, and they were kind of like, oh, our daughter's really talented. And one of those things where it was like, clearly this child should not be like hanging around with the Bush Tetras, but like, sure. I just found while you were talking to, to me about this, uh, an article on Dangerous Minds that talks about uh, Chandra. So I'm going to take a look at that after we get done with this. What a great score. Thank you. What about artists perhaps that you love that never quite got the big break? Is there anybody in particular that you've liked and admired and felt really should have gotten a little bit more attention than they have? I, I like a lot of artists who are kind of like in the mid-level who I've people who are into that sort of scene know who they are and they'd be like, what are you talking about? Of course they're big. 
but they don't have like national recognition. Two artists who are really big in like East Nashville, um, Tristan and Emma Swift. I think they're both. Oh, I know Emma. We've had her, uh, we've had her on, uh, not, not on the podcast, but on something we've done for Spot. Emma is so great. I love her. Um, great person, great musician. I'm really glad that her last album of, of Dylan covers got a lot of national pickup. I think it was well-deserved. But those are two people who I, I just think they're so, so talented. And I'm like, I want you to be huge. Understood. Uh, Emma Swift, uh, as you mentioned, did a, an album that's called Blonde on the Tracks. Yeah. Which was her album of um, Dylan covers last year. Well worth checking out. Uh, do you have a, a band or an artist who perhaps you haven't told people you like? Like a, a guilty pleasure and you're going to share that with us right now? Mostly stuff that... I would have listened to as a tween in the early 2000s. Anything that would have played at Limited 2 from like 2001 to 2005. It's such saccharine Disney Channel bullshit. Like Lindsay Lohan, Hilary Duff. I don't know. <laughs> any of that stuff. I, it just taps into something in my brain. That I'm like, I, 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 I love get this. it. I mean, we, we, all have I know these we all have these references that we, that, that we grow up with and they are what they are, whoever it was. If that's what digs in when you're 10 years old, then it's going to stick around. Yeah. One of those things where I listen to it now and I'm like, this is objectively not good, <laughs> but it's a bop. But I still like it. Yeah. <laughs> so Carrie, it's been great talking to you. I'm very interested and intrigued in uh, what you uh, pull together for your, for your book about Elaine May when that comes out. But I always like to finish up with a question after talking with somebody about music for a little while. It's 30 minutes just hanging out. How do you feel right now? I feel good. This is one of my favorite things to do is just like chat about music. Could be worse. Thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klain. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.